As we come to prayer time this morning, I'd like to uh, read from Psalm 61, the first four verses of Psalm 61, where we read, Hear my cry, O God, give heed to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to thee, when my heart is faint, lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for thou hast been a refuge for me, a tower of strength against the enemy. Let me dwell in thy tent forever. Let me take refuge in the shelter of thy wings. Father, we thank you for the numerous promises in your word of the peace, of the shelter, of the eternal life that is waiting for those that are committed to you. And for the fact that in this life, you are our high tower and our strength and our shield. And you're the one who goes before us and behind us and alongside us and within us. And we trust in you today to be our, our guide, to be the light unto our path, that your word will speak to us clearly this morning. As we look further at the life of this man, Samson, we will see what it is that you were doing through him and in him and in the process of preparing the way for the coming of Messiah. Lord, bless your word as it's proclaimed today uh, on this property and, and throughout the city of Reading. We pray that many will be drawn to you in Jesus' great name. Amen. If you'll turn to the 15th chapter of Judges, I'd like to read beginning at verse 9. Then the Philistines went up and camped in Judah and spread out at Lehi. And the men of Judah said, Why have you come up against us? And they said, We have come to bind Samson in order to do to him as he did to us. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Edom and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? And he said to them, As they did to me, so have I done to them. And they said to him, we have come down to bind you so that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, Swear to me that you will not kill me. So they said to him, No, but we will bind you fast and give you into their hands. Yet surely we will not kill you. Then they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. What we find in the book of Judges is an ongoing saga of revenge and counter-revenge, it seems. Because of what Samson has done up to this moment, they have come to find him. Of course, he, he kind of did in their crops down in the Sorek Valley, and they're not a little angry about this. And so they've come up to try to find Samson. And so they send a military force. I mean, we, we got a military unit coming in, probably up the Sorek Valley, penetrating now outside the land of Dan into the actual territory of Judah. Now, Dan and Benjamin are right smack on top of Judah. The tribal area of Benjamin was up here, and the tribal area of Dan was over here. So both of them were sitting on top of the tribal area of Judah. But the Philistines, of course, have penetrated in here, and they've cut off the coastal territory that belonged to Judah, and they cut off the coastal area over here of Dan, too. So they've chopped off the territory that was originally given to Judah and given to Dan along the coast here. So what they have done is Samson lived right about where that little red dot is bouncing around there, not too far from Beth Shemesh here in the Sorek Valley, the Sorek Valley here. And he is down somewhere in here, probably at Edom. 
And so the uh, Philistines have come up into Judah here at Lehi, exactly where Lehi is, of course, is not known, but it's somewhere in that area, not too far from Beth Shemesh. The men of Judah are frightened. Here's this army arrayed against them, and they weren't prepared for any battle. And uh, so they went to ask, why are you here? Why have you invaded our land? What have we done that's caused you to become upset with us? Well, what is interesting is we discover from this passage that the people of Judah were willing to accept Philistine hegemony. They were not willing to say, wow, look at what Samson has done. Let's go get Samson and let's make him our leader. Let's make him our shofat and let's get rid of the Philistines. This was not even in their mind, apparently. So what do they do? Instead of dealing with the Philistines, they decide to go get Samson for the Philistines. Now, of course, we have to think about this. They could have told Samson where, I'm sorry, the Philistines where Samson was. They don't do that. They instead go to Samson themselves. Now, what's interesting is they know where Samson is, apparently, because they went right down to the cleft of the rock at Edom, where he was hiding out. And they sent 3,000 men to get Samson. Now, 3,000 men is quite a crowd. You know, I, I think this was to impress upon Samson that we're really upset, you know? It wasn't like one guy coming down and, and giving his little word. It's this whole crowd of men coming down to convince Samson that he needed to do something to get the Philistines out of their territory. Well, in verse 11 of this particular passage, we see that since the Judeans were willing to accept Philistine rule over them, they weren't willing at this point at least to fight against them, they blamed Samson for the problem. They blamed Samson for endangering them because of what he has done to the Philistines and to their property. Certainly the Judeans knew very well that he had torched the whole Soric Valley and burned up the grain down there. And of course they knew of the uh, Philistines that he had killed uh, already up to this moment. So they come down and they say to Samson, uh, what have you done? Why have you done this? And his answer is basically an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. I have done to them what they have done to me. Of course, obviously they hadn't done anything really to him except to wipe out his, uh, kill his wife that he had married and make a fool out of him in that way. And of course to trick his wife or his wife tricked him so he gave away his, he was really angry at the Philistines. And so he felt they got what they had deserved. And that's what he's telling his fellow Judeans. My, my thought about this was, what if he had been a man of Judah rather than a Danite? When the, would the Judeans have reacted the same way? Or would they have said, oh, oh, why don't you be our leader and let's drive out the Philistines? But since he's from the tribe of Dan, you know, their attitude is, why don't you just surrender and we'll get rid of this problem? I think there was that much difference in the tribes at this time. That much um, sense of, of, of non-community between the various tribes already by this particular time. Well, when the Judeans told Samson what they were there for, we're here in order to take you to the Philistines. Clear and simple, plain and simple. He yielded to their request. He said, okay, you can take me down to the Philistines. But he requested that they do him no harm. And they, they said, of course, that's fine. Why did he say yes? Why, why did he say this? Is this just pure arrogance on his part? Or has God put it in his heart to agree? I think the Lord has inspired him here. 
to agree, giving him the confidence within that it's going to work out okay. It's going to be to my glory. And so what we discover here is he is bound with two new ropes. What this implies is that the legend of his strength is already very widely known, even though he hasn't done the greatest deeds yet. It's already known this guy's a tough guy, and so we better make sure that we bind him well. So he yields to them, they bind his arms, they bind his hands, and then they take him up the hill back to where the Philistines are camped at Lehi uh, to deliver him over. Of course, the Judeans certainly must have known what the Philistines would probably want to do to him, and so did Samson. So let's see what happens here as we read on at verse 14. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines shouted as they met him, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, so that the ropes that were on his arms were as flax that is burned with fire, and his bonds dropped from his hands. And he found the fresh jawbone of a donkey, so he reached out and took it, and killed a thousand men with it. Then Samson said, With the jawbone of a donkey heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey I have killed a thousand men. And it came about, when he had finished speaking, that he threw the jawbone from his hands, and he named the place Ramoth-Lehi. Then he became very thirsty, and he called to the Lord and said, Thou hast given this great deliverance by the hand of thy servant, and now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? But God split the hollow place that is in Lehi, so that water came out of it. So he drank, and his strength returned, and he revived. Therefore he named it An Hakore, which is in Lehi to this day. So he judged Israel 20 years in the days of the Philistines. Obviously didn't turn out exactly as the Philistines had planned. The Philistines, of course, were anticipating the return of the Judeans. They weren't sure, of course, whether they would really bring him back or if he would attempt to lead them in resistance against the Philistines. But when they saw these men coming and they were leading Samson, bound tightly, arms and hands bound, and bring him into the camp, they were overcome with relief. The great Samson has been bound and is brought in, being brought into their camp by his own people, this hated enemy of, of Philistia. And I think that the joy they felt of the anticipation of what they were going to do to him, it isn't pretty to even think of what they were probably planning to do. And their emotions welled up and they were shouting, and, and I think they were shouting obscenities at him. They were shouting what they were going to do to him. Uh, they were just really overcome with joy that the enemy had been captured. And so they were rushing together to surround him. And the scripture just flat out says, and the Lord came mightily upon him. The spirit of the Lord came mightily upon Samson. And he exhibits superhuman strength here. He breaks the ropes as if they are, according to the scripture, burnt flax. Just you know, like this. The ropes fell off his hands. They fell off his arms. And he looked around and right there was the jawbone of literally an ass. It was a tame ass probably, uh, which what a donkey is. A donkey is a tame ass. And grabbed this particular jawbone and began to, you know, God alone knows, probably the other Philistines who knew were probably dead. Whatever the case was, the 
jawbone was exactly where Samson needed it. I wonder how that happened, you know. God knew exactly where he would break the cords and he saw to it that the jawbone of a donkey was right there at the right moment of time. Well, what we're looking at here happens very quickly and the Philistines, of course, are taken by complete surprise. God is in control here. This jawbone of the ass is fresh, the scripture says. Fresh, meaning that it's still strong and heavy. So it becomes a weapon. It probably still had teeth in it, for all that matter. Who knows? And it was a small weapon. But with that weapon, he blood bludgeons a thousand Philistines to death. Now, how would you like to be killed with the jawbone of an ass? How could he do this? I mean, it wasn't, I mean, we're not talking about some big old thing here, you know. It was a fairly small object here. And it was because of his sheer ferocity. I mean, he went at these guys like a buzzsaw. And he began to lay into them, and they offered no effective resistance. We might ask, why is this? The Philistines were, this was an army. These guys had swords and spears and bows and arrows. They should have been quickly able to subdue Samson. Why did nothing happen? Why did nobody apparently even try to fight him? At least the scripture doesn't say that they did. Well, I think that here, here they were, expecting to, have to, to, to be able to mistreat this man who had been such a pain to them and to see him just suddenly snap all those ropes as if they were thread, grab a jawbone and start laying into the nearest guys. I mean, it was like ah, the panic of God fell upon them. And I think that's really what happened. The panic of God was poured out on these Philistines. And they knew, of course, what, what Samson had done in, uh, at Ashkelon how he had killed 30 Philistines in order to get the clothing and what he had done in Timnah and what he had done in burning the Sorek Valley. They knew he was a dangerous man. And when that, uh, those ropes break and he broke and he grabbed the jawbone, I think a tremendous fear went through their hearts. And nobody had the heart to, to grab a spear and, and run at Samson. They all ran the other way to get clear of this maniacal man wielding the jawbone of an ass. They were so terrified, there was absolutely no organized resistance. There's none at least implied in this passage. It, I mean, the, 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 what is the statement here? The statement is so quickly passes through that says that, verse 15, he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, so he reached out and took it and killed a thousand men. I mean, just, just like that. Now, obviously, it took him a little while. But nevertheless, there is nothing to imply that there was a great battle here or that there was any significant resistance to him. And I think we have to realize this is the hand of God. There have been champions all down through history. There have been men like Goliath. But there have been resistance to such people. Uh, you go back to the Middle Ages and you have your Richard the Lionhearted and other individuals like that who are great champions and capable of uh, fighting many men at once, but nothing like this. This is a man with no armor. And I, I don't think he was, you know, seven foot tall and 350 pounds. I think Samson was a relatively normal sized person, even though whenever they do in, him in the movies, they use some muscle man, you know, to play Samson. And, you know, he, he may have been a, a muscle man, but it wasn't his muscles that gave him this strength. It was God that gave him this strength. 
we have to recognize his strength is always superhuman. If it were not superhuman, cutting off his hair wouldn't have mattered, right? It was the strength of God that flowed through this man. He outran those that were running from him. As I've mentioned to you before, the record of history is that more soldiers die from bullets and spear points and arrows in the back than any other way in history, running from the battle scene. And so he, oh, he was empowered by God. He outran everybody. He just whopped them on the head as he ran by, you know, and uh, knocked him into piles here and there. It's kind of gross when you think about it, but this is what God enabled him to do because this is God's judgment upon this pagan people. The scripture makes it very clear, and this comes out particularly in Isaiah and Jeremiah, that although God will use another people to discipline his people, those people he use, uses to do this have a responsibility to look to God as the one who enabled them to do this and not to take it as their own ability and to be proud about it because God will then destroy them. And that's, of course, what happened to the Assyrians and what happened to the Babylonians and what happened to the, all the different peoples down through time that were used by God to oppress Israel and what will happen to the Philistines. Well, where did the rest go? There were certainly more than a thousand Philistines. I think they were still running hours later. You know, he couldn't go every direction, and I'm sure they scattered in multiple directions and uh, took off particularly back down the Sorek Valley to get back home. But Samson, ever the poet, commemorated the slaughter with the words that we read in verse 16. Now, the word, the Hebrew word hamor, H-A-M-O-R, can be translated either heap or ass. And so in the first lines of the verse, uh, in verse 16, we read that, then Samson said, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps. Hamor upon Hamor. The idea meaning that with the jawbone of a donkey, he knocked the Philistines in piles here and piles there. But it can also be translated with the jawbone of an ass, I made asses of them, is what it can also mean. Because it is really nonsensical that somebody picks up the bone of a donkey and, and kills a thousand men with it who are all soldiers. It's like, I don't know what it'd be like today, somebody going out with a dagger and fighting a modern army with, which has machine guns and rockets and grenades and out there killing all these guys with his little dagger, you know, same kind of an idea. It's, it's totally ridiculous, it's ludicrous, it's nonsensical. But, of course, it's what God enabled him to do. Well, Samson was tired after a while, and the scripture says he threw the bloody jawbone away, and he named the place Ramoth-Lehi, the heights of the jawbone. <laughs> That's why I think when the scripture tells us here in uh, chapter 15, that uh, in verse 14 where it says, when he came to Lehi, and back earlier, even in the passage where it says that the Philistines camped at Lehi, that's a name given to the place by the author here, of, or the writer of Judges, after the fact. They didn't go to the place of the jawbone, and accidentally Samson happened to use a jawbone to kill him there. No, he used a jawbone, and they named the place as a result Lehi. So as we read through the scripture, you have to understand that names are often given from hindsight back at a, an event that's being recorded that occurred earlier. Well, 
Samson put out this tremendous effort. Yes, God empowered him, but he still was running and swinging and sweating and working very hard to defeat the enemy. And when he finished slaughtering the Philistines, we're told that he had a raging thirst. What is interesting here is we discover that he calls on the Lord. Look at verse 18. And he became, then he became very thirsty, and he called to the Lord and said, Thou hast given this great deliverance by the hand of thy servant, and now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? How many times in Scripture do we read these kind of illogical conclusions? You know, it's, it always reminds us of Elijah who did this great victory in the top of Mount Carmel and then because Ahab's wife, Jezebel, thank you, uh, because Jezebel threatened him. I kept thinking of Delilah and, oh, no, no, that, she's here. <laughs> he takes off and runs in the desert and says, oh, no, Lord, there's nobody left but me. <laughs> That's the human condition. He calls upon the Lord. And he gives the Lord credit for the victory. He says, you have enabled me to win this great battle over the Philistines. I, gi I give you honor that you have enabled me to do this. But then he turns around and accuses the Lord <laughs> of allowing him to die of thirst or to be so thirsty that he'd be so weak that the Philistines will come back and kill him. Does that make sense? No. But if you were in that condition, yeah, probably would. Because when we get into a situation where we're emotionally or physically exhausted, we're hungry, we're thirsty, we don't always think rationally, especially when the enemy is always there to try to turn the tide against the work of the Lord. So what does God do? Does he say, buck up, Samson. You're not going to die. You know, it's sort of like Esau when he came to Jacob and said, my birthright's worth nothing if I die, so give me your porridge. He wasn't going to die. It takes a long time to die of hunger. You just don't die of hunger overnight, you know. It takes, what, 40 days and 40 nights or something. It takes a while. What we discover here is that God performs a miracle just for Samson. A miracle just for Samson. He splits, and the Hebrew word here is the maktesh. He splits the maktesh of the height of Levi. Now, if you go over to Israel today, and uh, just as... Uh, Ali and B have, have done, you'll discover that way down in the south, uh, in, in the rugged lands south of Beersheba, there, is, uh, there are several large bowl-shaped areas, which are called today Maktesh's. And, and Dr. Walmark remembers this. Uh, we went into one of those, and, it, and it's, it's really what it is. It's an eroded uh, anticline, I think it was there at that time. But uh, it's kind of a bowl-shaped. The idea is it's a concavity. In the case of these two I'm talking about, they're very large compared to what we're talking about here, which is probably just a small uh, place in the top of the mountain. And so we're talking about a kind of a concavity, a hollow area in the rock there that God touched, and a spring gushed forth. Now, we could stop and think about the scientific factors here, and we say... Did God know that there was water near the surface so all he had to do was split the rock and it would come out? <laughs> or did God put water there and then have it gush out? Oh, you know, who knows? Uh, knowing the land of Israel, it's more likely he put it there <laughs> so that it would gush out. It's, it's pretty much a dry land. A lot of it is anyway. And Samson was able to assuage his thirst. Now, of course, that reminds us, I think, of what God did for Moses at Horeb and what God later did for Moses at Kedesh, 
where water burst forth from the rock as a miracle from God. And now God does the same thing, not for Moses and six or, and two million people. He does it for just Samson. Just Samson. Does that tell us that God cares for us each individually, or what does it tell us? You know? God is not just concerned with the masses. God cares about each and every single little individual. And I know for us today, that's, that's kind of hard to grasp when we think of the tragedies of this world, and people are dying like flies all over the world, being killed in tragedies, natural disasters, and war, and all this stuff. And we think, how in the world could God be caring about all these individuals? And they're dying so fast, how can he even keep record of it, you know? But he does. In all three cases, God did this to demonstrate his love for that person and for his people, and to demonstrate his power. You are trusting in the right one because I am able to do this. And the purpose was to vindicate the faith of the person, to vindicate Moses' faith, to vindicate Samson's faith. Whatever degree to which Samson was a man of faith, it may be a look a little weak compared to Moses, but nevertheless, he still believed in God and trusted in him. And God vindicated not only his faith, but that he was doing the right thing at the right time. He was God's man of the hour. Well, after drinking of the water that God had provided, Samson was refreshed. He was revived, I think, not only physically, but spiritually, because what had God just done for him? Samson, you're thirsty? Whack! Need some water? And I think it was very good water, too. I think it was probably the best water there is. What, what is the old phrase? God doesn't create junk. And so we're talking about water here, unpolluted water, fresh water that came out of the ground and that Samson drunk. In gratitude, Samson names the place An Hakore, which means the spring of him who called. The implication is called unto God. The spring of him who called unto God. One of the things you do find out about Samson, though, he, he tends to never forget himself in all these things. The writer of the book of Judges informs us that the spring still existed at the time that he was penning this book. What that means is that God didn't just split the rock, give Samson a drink, and then shut the rock up. He left the spring to flow as an ongoing testimony to his power, to his love, to what he did on behalf of Samson for Israel. Future generations could come to that spring and say, this is the spring whereby God provided water for Samson so that Samson might continue to do the will of God. In the last verse of chapter 15, we read just a few words. So he judged Israel 20 years in the days of the Philistines. What is interesting about this is that this is the kind of a statement that the author usually put at the end of the life of a judge. And he judged Israel X number of years, and then you move on to the next judge or to the next topic. But this is not an epilogue, because we have another whole chapter about Samson. The whole 16th chapter deals with Samson. So why in the world does the writer put it here? Why does he put it at the end of chapter 16? Wouldn't that be kind of a fitting epitaph? Well, he does. But why does he do it at the end of chapter 15 also, more specifically and more fully? Well, uh, Delich, the famous German 
a commentator of the 19th century, believes that it was because chapter 16 merely records the fall and the ruin of Samson. And he says, although even in this he avenged himself upon the Philistines, he procured no further deliverance for Israel. So his deliverance was over as far as chapter 15 was concerned. 16 is more just his vengeance, even though, of course, from our perspective, it was God's vengeance also. Well, let's look at this last chapter that has to do with Samson. Verse six, chapter 16, verse 1. Now Samson went to Gaza and saw a harlot there and went into her. And when it was told to the Gazites, saying, Samson has come here, they surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the gate of the city. And they kept silent all night, saying, Let us wait until the morning light, then we will kill him. Now Samson lay until midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the city gate and the two posts and pulled them up along with the bars, and he put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the mountain, which is opposite Hebron. Not your normal midnight activity. Well, Samson's penchant for Philistine women continued to get him into trouble. What was Samson doing in Gaza? We have no inclination in the scripture as to why he was in Gaza. Maybe he was just looking for an opportunity to do some more damage to the Philistines. That's very possible. If so, he found it. Now, Gaza is the southernmost city of the Philistine Pentapolis. It's down here. He came from way up here, the Sorek Valley at Zorah. So he probably came down the Sorek Valley and then down the, the Via Maris, the main road that travels along the coast here, to Gaza, down here. You're at the southern end of Philistia there. And of course, of all the Philistine cities, this is the one that we still know because that part is still called Gaza today. Only today it's called the Gaza Strip because it's not just the city of Gaza, but it's a whole hunk of ground down here, this whole region down here, which is part of the uh, Palestinian state today, along with the West Bank over here, this region. This region, this region make up most, not all, but most of the Palestinian state. Uh, Gaza is not a very pleasant place to visit today, by the way. It's, well, if you, <laughs> Dr. Walmark remembers it, it, it's of course not a real safe place to visit, but was also pretty run down and kind of shanty-like in many ways, parts of it at least. To get to Gaza, Samson had to walk nearly 50 miles from Zorah. Now, how in the world does this man, I mean, he'd been in the cleft of the rock. The Philistines had tried to find him and, and, and they brought to him and, and they were going to kill him. And now, what's he, is he hiding in the cleft of the rock? No, he's walking in broad daylight right down through Philistia, headed for the southernmost city. I mean, he has to walk past virtually all of the cities right through the land of the Philistines in order to get to Gaza. How can a man of such notoriety do this? Well, I think, first of all, he was confident in his strength. After all, what had God done for him there at Lehi? Although bound, he broke the ropes, grabbed a jawbone, and slaughtered a thousand of them. What did he have to be afraid of? Secondly, he was very disdainful of the Philistines. He didn't like the Philistines. Oh, he liked the women, all right, but he didn't like the men too much. And uh, he wanted to see them cringe, I think. I, I think he got a delight to walk along. Here's a gang of guys. Whoops, that's Samson. You know, they take off into the brush. 
you know, does something for you, here you go, right? <laughs> you know, walking along there, flex every once in a while, <laughs> scare a guy or two. I think really he was looking for an opportunity. There's no statement here that he was there on business. What business would he have? He was, a, as far as we know, he was a farmer. He was looking for an opportunity to knock a few more heads, most likely. Whatever he was looking for, what he found was another alluring Philistine woman. Only this time, she was a harlot. It won't be the last harlot he runs into. Probably soon after he arrived in the city, he spotted this girl because he had quite the eye, you know, kind of checking out uh, the city as he came. And he decided to avail himself of her services. Where was God? God was not leading him to do this. I'm not going to tell you God didn't lead him to go to Gaza because the scripture doesn't say. But God did not lead him to go into a harlot. He was very far south of where he had done damage before. He had never, as far as we know, been as far south as Gaza before. Most of the damage he had done was up at Ashkelon or up in the Sorek Valley. And so how did anybody in Gaza know who he was, really? I mean, there, you know, in our days, it would be most wanted manual, photograph, uh, name, uh, aliases, and everything else that would be around. But most of the Philistines had never seen Samson. But somebody was there who may have been at Lehi or in the Sorek Valley or who knows where, and they spotted him and they spread the alarm. Samson is in our city. Well, you can imagine that through the city there went more than one type of emotion. One emotion was, good, we're going to get him now. The other emotion was, oh no, what have we done to deserve this? Maybe others besides. We have no idea what the harlot's emotions were or if she even knew who he was. Well, in response to the word spread, a squad of armed men set up a bivouac at the gate. City gates always shut at night. You don't want to leave the city gates open at night because who knows who's going to come into the city. So you shut the gate at night. And then you open the gate in the morning. And so here come a group of soldiers, tough guys, whoever they were, armed men, who set up a bivouac at near the gate, probably in the shadows there behind buildings so they could watch the gate. And they were going to stay there all night and watch for Samson. And when Samson came, they expected he would probably come in the early morning just as the gate was open so they could leave the city. And they were going to ambush him and they were going to kill him. Well, sometime around midnight, Samson came, became aware that uh, this situation existed. Did God give him uh, the sense of a trap was being set? We, we don't know. But he became suspicious and so he got up and walked down to the gate. Now, were the guards sleeping? Well, could be. Maybe they set a couple of guys to watch the gate, but no, no big problem, the gate's shut. The gate won't open until the morning, so we just need to be here. So he goes past the people who are probably sleeping there and uh, waiting for him. Now, <laughs> think about this. He tears, he tears the gates off the city. A lot of explanations are, can be given here, but he tears the gates off the city here. Now, can you imagine, was this a real quiet thing? <laughs> Rip the gates off the city real quietly. You know? Don't want to wake these guys over here. They need their sleep because they're going to need to bring the gates back the next day. And I mean, these guys either all slept through the racket 
Or they awoke and they said, no, <laughs> this isn't happening. <laughs> I'm sleeping and if I'm awake, I don't want anything to do with this guy, you know. They were probably petrified at this. I mean, who's going to attack somebody who's ripping the gates off a city? I mean, this isn't taking a door off this room here. I mean, we're talking about the gates. They're big wooden gates in the wall of the city. He not only took them off, he carted them away. Scripture says he put them on his shoulders and he walked off with them. Now, we have to understand this is God because I don't care how big he is. He can be Shock O'Neill. You put the gates on his shoulder and Shock's going to be real short. I mean, these gates were not light. They had to weigh at least a ton and probably more. Heavy wood, big iron bars and bolts and everything else. And he puts this stuff on his shoulder and towering up in the air and he walks off towards the hills with it. He climbs a hill three or four miles away and dumps them on the top of the hill on a hill facing to the east towards Hebron. I mean, this is absolutely superhuman. There isn't any way you can conceive of anybody being strong enough to do this in his own strength. I mean, the mighty men of all history would, would cringe at the very thought of having to do something like that. In the morning, the Philistines, of course, were chagrined. Not only that Samson had, for, had escaped, probably a lot of them were very glad he escaped after they saw what he had done, but that the city had been stripped of a key element in its defense. The gates were gone. There's a big hole in the wall here. Anybody could walk in or walk out of the city. An army could ride through the city gates. I think a lot of people stood there agape you know, looking at the city uh, wall with the, uh, with the gates missing. Anybody who had doubted what they had heard about Samson were made believers that day. Like the Queen of Sheba who came to Solomon and after seeing what he had and listening to him and asking him questions and riddles said, the half has not been told. I mean, his wealth and his wisdom was so great that it drew her all the way to Jerusalem from Yemen or wherever it was she came from. And she said the half hadn't been told. And I think that's the way these people felt. You know, well, we, yeah, he must be a strong guy, but nobody told us the half of how strong this guy is. I think the guys who had set the ambush were praising Dagon that they hadn't tried to catch him. <laughs> because they knew he'd made confetti out of them and for the celebration, I'm sure. And uh, they were very happy that that did not happen. Well, this man, of course, is bigger than life. He's totally legendary now. The word will travel through all the cities of Philistia that not only has Samson beat up on a thousand Philistines, but he's actually walked off with the gates of a city and trucked them to a, a hill four miles away. And it took us a team of oxen and a hundred men to bring him back, you know, or whatever. Well, that brings us now to uh, Samson's Achilles heel. Another woman, in her case, named Delilah. And uh, we won't start on her story today, but it's a very fascinating story. And of course, it's probably the best known part of, of Samson's whole life because it's the finale and as a result, very few people have historically named their children Delilah. Somebody might name a cat Delilah, but they won't name their children Delilah. Not that nobody has, but there are a few names that are not too popular, <laughs> like Judas and, and others. We'll talk about Delilah next week.